Welcome to the SCA Lectures podcast series, brought to you by Olam Specialty Coffee, connecting roasters to the finest specialty green coffees. The following is a talk presented live at the 2017 Global Specialty Coffee Expo, the largest annual gathering of specialty coffee professionals. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to Pulp Fiction, uh, Misconceptions About Coffee Fermentation, with Lucia Soli and Laurent Berthio. Um, Lucia studied uh, viticulture and ecology at UC Davis. She spent seven years working in production at various Napa Valley wineries before joining Scott Laboratories in 2014 to work on the application of different yeast strains in coffee and cacao. Her solid microbiological skills have allowed her to take many lessons from the wine industry and apply that knowledge to the microbiology of coffee. Laurent uh, worked 12 years in technical for the CIRAD, Agriculture Research for Development. Loren has, was in charge for the Century Lab, training panelists for coffee and cacao as quality manager. Um, he has done his job also in many coffee and cacao producing countries. One year ago, Laurent joined the Le Mans team as a technical support for coffee and cacao. His job is to develop pr products and process, process for the coffee and cacao fermentation by using yeast and bacteria. He is in charge of the trials in producing countries and also the cup tasting in the lab in France. So, yeah, let's give it up. I'm so excited to have so many people here. This is amazing. <laughs> like, thank you guys for coming and being interested in fermentation and uh, learning about what we're doing. Um, so... Laurent and I do very similar things uh, in different parts of the world. So I focus my trials in using inoculated uh, fermentations in the Americas, and then Laurent does uh, similar work in Africa and Indonesia, and recently India. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit more about how we got these strains, how we're using them, and then hopefully get through it pretty quickly so we can just get questions from you guys. Um. Oh, go ahead. First of all, I'm very sorry for my English. I'm French, so I don't speak very well. Um, okay, we're going to try today to make a small explanation of what are yeasts, how we can use it, how we can help in fermentation uh, for coffee application. I'm not a microbiologist, but I'm going to try to explain you how does it works and how we can use it well. Um, I, I would like to explain what is fermentation first for different uh, people around the world. Um, from I'm going to make three groups. The first one is about growers, <coughs> buyers, roasters, and consumers. The second one will be the um, coffee institute around the world. And the last one, the microbiologist. You will see that all that guy talk about fermentation, but they have not exactly the same definition. Okay, let's start by growers. Um, what they call fermentation is the action they need to remove the mucilage after the pulping. Fermentation step is really depending on the knowledge of them um, and also what the buyer wants. Thanks to that, we have seen the evolution of fermentation process to make unique coffee profile, like honey, fully washed, anaerobic condition now. Uh, there is no limit to the imagination of that people. As I said before, fermentation is commonly known for uh, mucilage removing, while aroma and cup tasting come mostly at the second plan. This is for farmers. What about buyers and roasters? They have generally the same objectives. Having a good coffee without any defects, with a consistent cup year after year. For them, fermentation is a small part of the quality they expect. Most of the time, fermentation is a problem for them because of the water pollution or consumption, but necessary to, necessary to have the best quality as possible. The control of that step is important, and they try to find the best way by making different trials of fermentation with their partner in producing country. What about consumer now? Unfortunately, most of the consumer don't have any idea that there is a fermentation in coffee processing. 
and before we went any further, um, sort of made this slide, like Laurent was saying, uh, fermentation means a lot of different things to different people at different parts of the process. So when we talk about it and as we move forward in terms of the application and the trials that we did that I'll show later, we're talking about this step where the cherry has been pulped, so the skin has been removed, there's still mucilage attached, and the fermentation is either done dry, so the tank where there's no water added and it's just the mucilage, the parchment in the tank, or it's been submerged, completely covered with water, and then it's either uh, washed or you could potentially not wash it and do maybe like a honey style. Um, but this is the part where we're applying the, the yeast. So it's immediately after pulping, and then there's some amount of contact with the yeast and the mucilage, whether it's 12 hours, 36 hours, um, uh, most of our trials focus on 12 to 36 hours. And then, like I said, it's washed. So we're not, at this conversation, talking about the dry process, the naturals. And we're not specifically talking about honey either or removing the mucilage mechanically. Uh, yep. And the other thing we wanted to make clear was that Sometimes in our trials, like I said, Laurent and I do a lot of these all over the world, and we have our samples, and we talk about, we want to see the difference that the yeast has made. And so sometimes we notice that the samples were being labeled, the one with yeast and the one without yeast, as you know, the reference, as the control. And that's not really accurate, because yeast is everywhere. Yeast is, it's coming in from the vineyard, it's on the skin of the fruit, it's on our skin, you know, people transfer a lot of yeast between locations. So it's not fair to say that these other fermentations don't have yeast. It's just that we don't know what they are. It's, it's wild, it's um, different depending on the temperature, kind of the location. So when we talk about our reference, it's really an unknown whatever's there. And a spontaneous fermentation will happen because like I said, the, the yeast and these, and it's also bacteria and um, fungus that are present all over the environment and causing these spontaneous fermentations. And this is what he was saying about removing the mucilage. Uh, fermentation was seen as a, a process, so like drying. And what we're talking about is fermentation, the metabolism, the opportunity to select the microbes that are going to be doing this process because those microbes give us uh, flavor characteristics that we're looking for. So I just wanted to make that clear. There's, there's, if there is a, f a fermentation or a microbial demucilage, yeast is present. And what we want to do is select the yeast that are going to be doing that, and we're going to talk about those benefits and, and how some of those strains were selected. Okay. Uh, so to continue after that, I um, told you that there is a lot of coffee institute and university working on that. Um, here is some example of two books talking about coffee fermentation, very well-known and used um, used around the world. Um, that's very important to, don't forget that fermentation is an anaerobic cellular process. It's very complicated, but this is the definition of fermentation. Which organic matter is converted in, by microorganism into simpler compound and energy. Uh, this definition is very large. Uh, but help us to understand that the aim of fermentation, microorganisms, thanks to their metabolism, degrade complex food in smaller compounds. These compounds are sugar, acids, amino acids, lipids. For example, sugar is transformed in alcohol, then transformed in superior alcohol-like esters. And all of them are aromatic compounds or aromatic precursors, which will be revealed after the roasting. Here are some of the um, institute around the world. There are not all of them because they are very numerous. But all that guy did very great job around the world on fermentation, but not only. Um, their role is to help producer on many topics as agroforestry, agronomy, genetics, environmental issue. But regarding the post-harvest, specifically the fermentation, all the job was done a long time ago. For now, they are more focused on all the disease and pests destroying the plantation around the world. And we are all agree for now it's a big issue and they have to work on that. But that's not the purpose for today. So fermentation. When you have that discussion with those in charge of that topic, they're still convinced that fermentation is mostly demucilagination. And enzymatication needed to remove all the mucilage. But 
we all know that for now we can do that mechanically. It's more easy, a uh, bit expensive, but you don't use any water to wash your coffee, so that's better, please. What is very important, um, it's that they are aware that things are changing now. And um, they restart working on fermentation to improve the cup profile because they have seen after many years of working that mechanical removing of the mucilage leads to low quality coffee. So they go back to the fermentation, try to impact the cup profile. And they try to improve uh, the process. Uh, Lucia told about duration, 12, 36, 48, more or less. Uh, but they also look about the waste that produce fermentation, which is a big issue you will see, and the water consumption, because this is a resource very important in producing country, and unfortunately it's going to be down and down and down area. A lot of, of these investigation programs are involved on that topic, thanks to all that uh, institute and also university around the world. Now, uh, let's see what does those microorganisms look like. Here you can see three of the major um, microbes used. So Saccharomyces, lacto, which is the yeast, Lactobacillus, which is a lactic bacteria, and Acetobacter, or Enococcus, who are acetic <coughs> bacteria. All of them are very different, have a very different metabolism, and when they use the substrate present in, they transform in it in a new one, which impacts the final product, could be the texture or aroma. They also impact the conservation of the, the fermented product. For example, in alcohol, yeast transforms the sugar in alcohol and also reveal varietal aroma or made fermentation aroma impact the bouquet of a wine. In milk products, lactic bacteria transform lactose in lactic acid that help the coagulation of proteins to give yogurt texture. For each microorganism, we have a type of fermentation to obtain the, fermentation, the fermented product we want. Here is a part of fermented food with microorganisms needed to produce them. We have chewed them because most of the consumers are aware about them. Beer, for example, one of the most holded fermented beverage. They use the yeast to manage this fermentation, giving different aroma, is well recognized. In cheese, there is also fermentation. Most of the people call it affinage. It helps the cheese to develop aroma and protection against other contamination. And the last, but I'm not going to talk a little more about this because Lucia is more an expert than me, is about wine. Uh, to explain it shortly, yeast and bacteria are involved in the winemaking to avoid spoilage, improve the aroma, improve the consistency, but always in the respect of typicity and terroir of each wine. But there is so many other examples around the food, the bread, the cider, the yogurt. Most of the food we eat is fermented by microorganisms, and the most commonly used is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, as you can see on this picture. Okay, uh, what about yeast uh, selection? So this is a very short graph of how we select a yeast for depending on the on what you want to make with the with her. Um, but before that, when you want to make a fermentation, you have two choices. The first one is let the nature do the job. The second one is select a yeast in the nature, not create a new one, and use it because you know exactly what she's going to make for the job, what kind of uh, aroma is going to create, what kind of um, impact she will have on the product. It's quite hazardous to wait and pray to have the time, to have each time the same good results. That's why the selection should be the good and the best way to have a good fermented product. Control your fermentation is not only for having a best sensorial quality. <coughs> it ensures you the, to better manage your process avoid spoilage, for example, but also to ensure sanitary quality of your product. In fact, having a controlled microorganism in your fermentation leaves less space 
to the bad microbes to develop themselves. Okay, so now I've talked about Coffee Institute and their research, but there is also a lot of university who make publication about the effect of yeast and bacteria on the process. Now, this is some example. There is so many we can add over there. But what is very important is that everybody looks for that. Fermentation on coffee and cocoa is very, very important part of the qu final quality of your product. <clears throat> okay, I finished my part for the microbiologic part, we could say. So let's talk about the trial we have done. So um, I was part of the first one, conducted by the CIRAD in Nicaragua. And after that, I'm going to talk about uh, one trial done by the WASI. It's the Research Institute of uh, Coffee in Vietnam. So two, two different parts. In Nicaragua, we have work on Arabica, and in Vietnam, on Robusta. Well, uh, here you can see the, so all the yeast we have tried. We have done this job in three years. Okay, uh, Each year, we, are wor we have worked on um, different altitudes, which is not mentioned here. But for example, L1, L2, L3, uh, the, two fir the three firsts um, for the first mission was conduct on lowland coffee, Arabica. Uh, we have used three different concentrations. 0.5, 1 gram, and 5 gram per kilo. And all of them was uh, fully submerged of water. So just to be sure that you understand what is submerged, uh, submerge your pulp your coffee, okay? Put in the tank, adding the yeast, and cover completely with water. Okay, and then you wait for 12 to 36 hours in that condition. This is what we call submerged. And after that time, we wash it. Yeah. Standard for the water? Uh, this is the current water. Okay. This is not recycling water. Uh, yeah, as it is, um, uh, we could say, a lab-scale trial, uh, we try to manage and control everything. So we know exactly the weight of coffee, the quantity of water, the time of contact, the temperature. We follow everything. Uh, this is for the first year. Uh, the second mission, uh, we do the same experiment, but with Highland Coffee. So the first lowland is between 600 meters and 800 meters. The second one is up to uh, one, 100 and 200 meters, 1,200 meters, sorry, uh, which are very different. Um, and the other difference was the temperature of the, the place we made the, the trials. The first, one is, the first one is hotter than the second one. Okay, and the last mission, uh, we decide to redo the same job um, about L1, L2, L3, but this time we do um, dry ferment, so pop the coffee, put in the tank, add the yeast, mix, and wait for 12 to 36 hours, and repeat the first experiment. And we had also five other yeasts, L4, L5, L6, L6, D high, and L7. And we have followed many parameters. Uh, here are all the parameters we have followed. So during the fermentation, we look for the pH and the temperature, which are for us the, uh, one of the um, parameters you can follow to see if there is any efficiency of your, fer your fermentation. But we look also at the um, efficiency of the mucilagination. Uh, how we do that? Uh, mostly how producers do that. You put your hand in the tank, then you put out some beans, and then you scratch it to see if there is any mucilage re removal on it. After that, uh, we brought some samples uh, in France, in my lab at this time, um, to make the sensory evaluation, and also to look for the chemical component. Um, what's, what's the idea about, about behind that? Is that we want to see if the, the yeast can modify the biochemical component in the in the bean. We don't want to modify the coffee. We just want to see what is the impact. And we have also done the volatile organic compounds. I told you a few slides uh, before that uh, esters are produced during the fermentation. So we want to see if these those esters are present in the coffee. 
First, uh, let's talk about um, pH. So as you can see here, uh, this is the first experiment. So you have the different yeast and the different concentration. So you will see that for all the trials with yeast, uh, the pH um, is lower faster. So what it's going to say is that the demycelogenation seems to be more fast and efficient with the yeast. But also at the end, you see the pH is a bit higher than the final one. So this is not a big, um, how could I say that? The pH at the end of the coffee is not very important. What is important is to see how fast it goes down. Okay? The more fast it goes down, it means the more fast is the demucilagination. Lucia will tell you after that that in some of her experiments, the fermentation, how they call in the fields, is much faster with the yeast, but you will see that after. Let's talk about uh, temperature, sorry. So this is the same experiment, and as you can see that uh, every time after two hours of fermentation, the temperature is very, very higher compared to the control. So you could say it's not a huge difference, and you will see there is one point, 1.5 degrees. Uh, it could be not very um, impressive for you, but remind that we are in 45 kg, so this is a very sh small quantity. If you do that in the tank, you can reach more than five degrees of difference. Um, what does it mean? Simply that uh, as you increase the temperature, you decrease the pH. So it means that you have microbial activity inside your tank. So yeast are active and do the job. I told you about biochemicals compounds. Um, here are some of family we have followed. Um, and this is on the last experiment, on the 36 hours fermentation. You see that there is not significant difference between all of the trials we have done compared to the control. It simply means that on that type of compounds, we don't have any impact. We are, you are not going to have a coffee with less caffeine if we use yeast, for example. This is just an example. Uh, we don't reduce the lipids. We don't reduce the sucrose. It means that all the compounds to make the aroma, remind what I've said before, are there. So now let's see about those aroma. This is the interesting part. Um, here we are after 12 hours. Um, hesters are, are a part that we follow because most of them are responsible of fruity flavored notes. So aldehydes and esters are the two components very interesting to see. You can see that L2, for example, though this is the green one, give very high difference compared to the control. I remind you that the control is spontaneous fermentation. Okay? There is yeast inside. Not selected yeast, but there is yeast inside. So you see clearly that using yeast and different yeast give you different aromatic profile at the end. This is on green coffee, okay? You don't see the impact of the roasting in that slide. And now the cupping score. As you see, 12 hours, uh, the control, so T, is below everyone. It means that in, and we have also different, um, different score at the end. So we could say that selected yeast in that part, give a better um, cupping score on the SEA scale. Now for 36 hours, you see that every time we are up to the control also. But if you remind the previous one, which is 12, you see that there is some of them who don't change the quotation, or very low. It means that each yeast depending on the time of fermentation, is going to express herself differently. It means that it's very important to give time to the process. As I told you before, there is an acidification. There is an increase of the temperature, meaning that the mucilagination is faster. But never forget that if you want some aroma, 
You have to wait enough time to create them. Let's talk about Robusta. Uh, so, completely different. Um, we have only tried two different yeasts, L1 and 2, which are exactly the same that we use on, Robu on Arabica. Uh, the quality is less, uh, 30 kg, and the concentration is unique, 1.5 gram per kilo. And we have done two processes, submerged, or we could say dry or pop natural. Uh, this is not exactly dry how we understand that. Pop natural means that they pop the coffee as honey process, and then they spray the yeast on honey process. Everybody follow me? Okay. And we only do 12 hours of fermentation. As for the CIRAD, we have follow exactly the same uh, parameters, but we include also the BOD and COD analysis. Uh, I'm not sure that everybody of you know what it is, but simply this is to check if there is uh, bigger contamination of the water during the process. Uh, for that part, I'm not going to show you all the results we have, uh, because most of them are quite similar. But I would like to talk about, another time, the efficiency of the fusilagination. As you can see, it's very, very efficient uh, compared to Arabica. Um, after 12 hours, we are 30% more demucilaginate compared to um, the control, the spontaneous fermentation. It means that the enzymatic action of yeast are very, very efficient on that part. Uh, how do they do that? Um, they try to make a scientific analysis of the demucilagination. So they took 50 uh, beans of Robusta in the tank, and they look on each one, how is it easy to remove the mucilage with the hand. They make the count, and then they have the percentage. You see that dry or submerged don't have a huge difference when you had the yeast. Okay, that's very important to notice that. Now, uh, about the cupping score. So, at any time, uh, using yeast gives better score, but submerged give higher score for the two yeasts. Mean that when you submerge your coffee inside, yeast have an action, but seems to be more efficient underwater. Maybe due to the homogeneity uh, between the middle of the yeast and the bean. Okay, uh, so if you summarize a little bit all of that, uh, the positive impact of the meal. First, uh, you avoid defects. As you have seen for Robusta or for Arabica, you increase the cup score, there is no uh, defect showing during the, the cupping. No over fermentation, nor polyla flavor, or I don't. I don't know what they were. Um, it helps also to um, make the work easy. Uh, I told you that the mucilagination is faster. It means that the washing will be faster also, and you are going to use less water to wash your coffee at the end. So that's the water saving, very interesting. On the cup quality, I don't show you the results, but um, all of the trials done were done in, repli in triplication. Replicate, sorry, replicate it three times. And what is the most important is the consistency. You cup the coffee at different time, and every time you have the same cupping score at the end. That's very, very interesting. And also improve the cup quality. So to conclude, for my part, um, <coughs> fermentation have a huge impact on the cup score. If you compare... Uh, Non-fermented coffee, fermented coffee, you will see any time a difference. If you compare dry process, submerged process, you will see a difference. So my final sentence would be, um, it's better to select your yeast to make your fermentation. Okay, Lucia. So in the first part, Laurent gave you a really uh, clear kind of path of how these, like why we're using selected yeast strains, kind of where they come from, they're used in our food supply already, and how we can harness some of this power of 
selecting the microbes that are going to transform our food. And he also talked to you about how those were selected to use in coffee. So they tried, um, he only showed you seven. Each L, you know, L1 was levadura one, yeast one, yeast two, yeast three. Um, but they've tried several, several yeasts. Those are just the ones we decided to show here to say um, these performed well after 12 hours, they performed well submerged, and then they continued to kind of be selected. Started out with, let's say, 50, and then 20, and then 10, and, and then we've taken a couple of those um, and made larger trials. So the data that Laurent showed you were on uh, 30 and 45 kilos. Um, now, my work, like I said, focuses mostly on the Americas. So this is where we've done commercial scale trials. These are big, big tanks because things change a lot once you get out of the lab and uh, trial size into the realities of the water conditions, into the realities of the labor that's available for these locations. So you can see um, where we have trials in the world so far. Um, and I'm going to talk to you specifically about three places, like three very different ways that we can use the yeast uh, at the mill level. Um, and so these are studies that I did uh, the last couple of years focusing Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. So these countries are clearly very close to each other, and you'd think they'd be very similar, but we can use yeast in a very diverse way. So when we're talking about the mill, we're, other things have a big impact on how the yeast are used. So the water. Is it clean water? Is it coming from a spring? Is it rainwater? Or is it recycled water? That uh, impacts the yeast because it's, uh, you know, you can think about the competition of water that's been recycled, starts to build up its own microbes, and in some facilities, um, and in some mills, they they like the water to be really charged because they know that later on um, in the season, you get much faster fermentation time. So in the beginning of the season, it's starting, it's kind of chilly, maybe the fermentations are 19, 20 hours, but they know that after a couple of weeks, after a couple of months, middle, end of the season, they can get through it in 12 hours because there's more microbes in the water. So knowing that affects our yeast dosage because we're competing against that. Um, our tank space is a potential bottleneck because, like we said, we can do this contact for a long time. We can remove the mucilage as quickly as four hours if it's hot, or we can continue and leave it for, I've done 72 hours uh, with good results. So it's that's really leaving you that room to say, it could be a bottleneck because maybe you don't have the tank space, you need to turn it over, the cherry's coming on the truck, and you don't have 72 hours, you really need to get it through there because it's going to spoil on the truck. So that's another consideration. Again, the temperature impact, so are you a really high elevation mill where it's freezing and things take a long time, or are we at lower elevation, it's warm? Uh, one of these is done in El Salvador, and it's... Uh, we've had some 90-degree days. It was very warm very quickly. Um, so that impacts the yeast metabolism as well. Uh, process time, if, like you said, if we don't have the, the labor, the, the people around to turn the tanks, maybe the fermentation ends at 2 in the morning, but no one's there, and you have to wait another 8 hours for people, that's where you have some uh, potential defects with, without our yeast. So that's what we're talking about. This is places where we can have an impact. Um, and then quality. At some places... Some places, quality, because they're just selling parchment, it's more about the efficiency. Like, if I can just remove my mucilage really quickly, then I can move on. No one's, no one's going to pay me more if this is an 80 or if this is an 85, because um, they, they're not checking at that, at that point. So there's all of these different applications. And how do we use the yeast? Uh, it sounds very, I think, uh, esoteric, but what we need really is a scale. We need the yeast. So this is one that, um, that we've used. It's called SEMA. And it comes in a freeze-dried powder. I usually bring it in my backpack, and it kind of looks like coffee. Uh, <laughs> clean water for this stage. We, we really want to give the yeast the best opportunity. So if we require clean water to rehydrate the yeast because it's freeze-dried. But then in your mill, if you don't have clean water all the time, we're trying to work with the dosage to, to compensate for that. We need a kettle to heat up the water because right now the yeast needs slightly warm water. It's kind of like us. You don't want to be rehydrated into a freezing cold bath because it'll shock. It'll be a temperature shock. Um, and then we'll mix and then we'll add to the tank. So like I said, we'll weigh out a little bit of yeast, add some warm water to rehydrate, and wait 10 minutes, let the yeast wake up because they've been frozen, and then add it to meet immediately after uh, removing, removing the skin. And then other things that really affect how 
how effective our yeast are is the ripeness, because the yeast eats sugar. So if you, you can see various stages of green, kind of mixed, and, and really ripe fruit. Um, so that affects the metabolism because it's a sugar source. So if the yeast don't have a lot to eat, they're not going to be as effective as when they do have more resources. And it's not just the sugar. Um, we also want you know, other, other nutrients, nitrogen. There's, there's other things that the yeast need to be really happy and effective. Um, no, so these are, I, I would love to, and I, and I do bring a refractometer to, to gauge for the fermentation, but not to check the starting bricks necessarily, because it's really difficult. As you see, when we check the, the, the bricks of the fruit, we're really checking one or two cherries, but they're so, there's not, it's not a homogenous mass. To, if it was strip harvested, that, that could, that could help, um, and, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, we're looking into ways to have a better starting point. But like I said, like what? what? I do agree. Huh? Maybe, maybe I can answer the question because yeah. I've done that. I've, d I've done that in, um, in uh, Laos. I'm looking for They only do strip picking. But anyway, um, if you look for the coffee coming, your bricks, if you look in the refractometer, could be between 14 to 22. And it doesn't depend on the color of the cherry. I've made the trial with very purple, very red, or pink, or yellow. Every time it's different. There is no uh, one color for one bricks. It doesn't work. Yeah, that would be great if we could. Um, it's kind of one of my personal missions instead of also using the word fermentation a little bit more accurately. Also, understanding what bricks is measuring. and. You know, coming from wine, it's a it's a shortcut for for sugar, but it's really measuring density. So, like Laurent said, there's many different uh, cherries that can have the same density but very different development. And what we want is a flavor. And so, the the sugar is important for the yeast, but at this point, it's very difficult to measure. So, we're looking at. And so, I'm, so this this is it, what I wanted to say to your question is I'm doing. I call it customer service. Uh, instead of research, because I, I get invited to these facilities that want to work with me. I'll bring the yeast, and then I work with whatever conditions they have. It's very difficult to impose um, what I wish I could have in a perfect trial, and having clean water and sorting, separating by cultivar, and exactly 12 hours. Because if there's no labor or if there's more fruit coming, we've got to deal with those realities. So I would love to do that. Um, but this is mostly explaining the things that affect the results. So our starting material, the ripeness, and if they're sorting. Like I mentioned, the water. This is a very extreme example of water that was recycled. You can see how um, <laughs> it's a very extreme example. But this is the water that they used to depulp. And you can imagine that that water, it's not necessarily that it, it looks dirty, and, and um, but it's that there's a lot of microbial activity in that water. There's a lot that you're inoculating the incoming cherry with. Um, and then the last one, you can see a competition. It depend One tank is used a lot. One tank is not used as often, depending on uh, how much fruit arrives that day. So you can imagine if you ferment in one versus the other, you're going to get different flavors because there's in the one on the left, different things live there. Uh, you know, concrete is very porous, and microbes are very small, and they hang around for a while. And so... That's what I'm talking. When I say competition, I mean the the native microbes, the the wild microbes that are found there, competing against the yeast that we're trying to introduce. So these are all things that give us different results, and why it's very difficult to do the sci scientific research in a large scale trial. So these are the best practices that we've talked about. These are the things that I try to keep consistent: is the submerged. Uh, method because if it's possible, if there's enough water, because we get the consistent environment. So if you have these really, really large tanks, you can imagine some maybe they're hit by the sun, so the top is a little bit warmer than the bottom, and that creates a different kind of microclimate for for the yeast and bacteria to live. And every time you have a really large mass and you don't have homogeneity, you're creating different homes where things can live and you're creating very different flavors. So submerging the, the, the fermentation allows us to you know, try to homogenize one, one more way. At least you get more even temperature throughout the mass 
And also the yeast can't move by itself, so the water helps the yeast kind of get all the way around to where the sugar is. Um, cover, cover is not super important, but we like to in terms of controlling the temperature and preventing other insects or other things from, from falling in. And we're measuring, um, so what I measure is the pH, the bricks, uh, the starting temperature, and then the sensory. It's, it's really important to start smelling it because the, the coffee is going to absorb those flavors, and so we want to make sure that they're still good. So we're just kind of recording data at this point. So one location that I had, and I'm sorry, I see now how small this, this writing is, um, but one application is in locations where it's really cold, like up in the mountains, and there's a long fermentation. So I did this trial in Guatemala. Um, you can see it's 1,900 meters, and the temperature was 8 Celsius to 18. It was pretty chilly. This location was found between uh, two volcanoes. So they got about eight hours of sunlight, uh, direct sunlight per day, so it was very chilly. It took a long time for these fermentations to happen. Um, so he, this producer had 72 hours uh, that it took him to be able to turn over his coffee. And his volume was fixed, meaning he owned the farm and he owned the mill, and so he knew how much coffee was coming in. So he really, he, it wasn't a scenario where trucks of fruit were arriving and he had to hurry up and, and move over. Um, so producer owns the farm and the wet mill. We tried a yeast uh, we call Oro, and you can, now you can see the batch size. We've moved up to a, a pretty substantial um, tank, 2,000 uh, 2, kilos of cherry. Um, his varietals were Bourbon and Katura, uh, and I did this in February of 2015. And his objectives were he had a lot of water. That was fine. He had a lot of tank space. He wasn't waiting to turn over tanks. Um, the temperature was an issue because it was cold, and he was just waiting a long time, 72 hours process time. The labor was not a problem. He had a crew. And his quality, he wasn't really looking to increase quality. He sold his coffee. He had he was happy with it, but he was waiting 72 hours. So he was wondering if there was something we could do. Um, so maintain his quality, because it was good, and reduce the processing time. And why wouldn't anyone want to increase their quality? I think that's a little bit... Um, maybe confusing, but for him, he already had his coffee pre-sold. So if he sold them coffee, if he put in more energy to get better coffee, he wasn't necessarily going to be compensated for it because it was already contracted. But he did want to maintain quality, and if he could help his process by reducing the time, that would be a win. So what we were able to do with this inoculated yeast was we were able to reduce the water. And he wasn't necessarily looking to do that, but it was kind of this unintended benefit because what happened, as Laurent showed, is the yeast is really, really efficient at removing the mucilage. So he had the situation where it was freezing cold, and it took 72 hours to remove the mucilage, so he was washing, washing the coffee, and after that, the water was so cold coming from the mountains that sometimes the mucilage would congeal back on. And he would have to use extra water to continue to wash it off. It was very frustrating for him. So because the yeast was able to really break apart, it's kind of like uh, you know, marinating your meat for like 24 hours, just falls off the bone. That's the, the scenario that he had in the tank. So he was able to save water by not needing to double wash because of the mucilage uh, coming off so quickly. Tank space, not a problem. The temperature, it was still cold. We didn't do anything about the temperature, but we were able to make it more efficient. And we reduced the process time from 72 to 30 hours. And some other people would say 30 hours is still a long time, but for him that was enough of a gain. And, uh, and it helped have consistency in his coffee. And we maintained the cup score. We didn't affect and we didn't decrease the, the quality that was coming. We were just able to speed up the, the time a little bit. So that's one application of how we used it. Now, in a very different scenario, this is hot and short. This is in El Salvador and Santa Ana. You can see the elevation, 600. It's um, much lower and, and up to 33. These are very hot days. And their fermentation time, six hours. And because we're among friends, I'll, I'll tell you, six hours is pretty generous. I was there one time, and it was four hours, and it was, they were just turning it over. Um, and they have uh, variable volume. This mill buys cherry from all over, and so trucks would arrive, um, you know, not necessarily unannounced, but you didn't really know when the trucks were arriving, and they would have some amount of cherry, and you just had to go and, and empty it. 
So we tried a different yeast for this uh, for this scenario. It was called Sema. Again, the batch sizes are still pretty large because they had really large tanks and uh, were bone varietal, and this was in December. And for them, this, this particular place, the things that we were looking to do were increase process time because they, want, they did want to increase the quality. And like Laurent said, we can remove the mucilage really quickly, but you still need enough time for the yeast to have contact to increase the cup score. So you have to balance, I want to reduce my time, but I want more quality. So this was our objective here. Increase quality, increase process time. So again, we're using yeast to do opposite things here. So their water had no change. Now, why didn't we save water here? Well, we didn't save water because the way that this mill was structured, we couldn't save water. <laughs> the way They use water to move the coffee from one place to another. So the whole tank had to be flooded so that the coffee could be moved because it's solid. So there wasn't a way to, to reduce water in this situation because of this architecture of the mill. But they did notice that because there, the yeast had a lot of activity in, in the wash water, that we were able to kind of start breaking down the microbes. And I know a lot of people are concerned about the wash water uh, in, in coffee because it's so heavily charged and it can be very um, taxing on the environment if it's just dumped back in because there's very low oxygen in it. And if you dump it in the river, then you're creating this very anaerobic environment that's very bad for the fish and the wildlife and, and all of that. So this particular place, they collected their water into several um, the several uh, sediment pools, and they noticed after they did this process for a while that they were using less chemicals to treat their water, and it just for them it was cleaner because it, it was like again that the activity was already um, accelerated, and the water was you know before they went on to the next pools. So we didn't change the water, but for them, they, they gave us the feedback that it was cleaner. The tank space, it may be an issue, right? Because they have these variable volumes. They were used to doing these fermentations in 6 to 12 hours, and we increased it to 36. So, and maybe earlier in the season or later, they would have the time and the space to do that, and maybe in peak season, they wouldn't. So that's a consideration for them. Temperature, still hot. Still very, very warm days. We increased the process time, but that was good. That's what we were looking for. And their labor, they didn't have an issue. They had a crew there that was that was constant. And we were able to increase the cup score in this situation. Um, most of the samples, so this is kind of an ongoing project. And I'm going to say on average, we've done two to three points, which for them was good. It was very good to get that consistency. And in some cases, it was five. But that, that five has not been that consistent. But it's happened. Because, again, of the competition, kind of where, what the baseline is. So, so now this is something a little bit different. Um, this is a study uh, trial that I did in Honduras, and this was done over various locations. So this is not one particular mill. This is a different way to use it. So these are small, um, small holders with a lot of variability. So the elevation... Um, you can see it's, it's very, this is kind of more of the mid-range, but quite a variety. The temperature, kind of in the middle, 12 Celsius to 25, and their fermentation time was anywhere from 24 to 40 hours, so lots of variability. And in this scenario, the mill purchases cherry from many farmers, so this everything's kind of coming in, and you have a lot of this variability from quantity, from cultivars, from temperatures, from elevations, and kind of aggregated. Um, in this one, we used Oro, and these are much smaller batch sizes, so it's 500 kilograms of cherry and a lot of different varietals, kind of anything that was there. So here, um, th what they were really looking for was the process time um, because at this point also, these they were mostly getting paid on volume, how much cherry they brought in and how much they could turn out. If something was you know, a 75 and something was an 80, there wasn't a way to check what that quality was at this level, so they weren't going to get paid more for it. So what we could do is increase the process, reduce the time, so that they could process more cherry and get paid by volume. So increase uniformity and decrease processing time. So here, the water was actually a big issue, um, and we were able to reduce the water significantly because of the washing step, because it was 
removing the mucilage very quickly, very completely, and it just took very little water to clean out the last little bit. Uh, the tank space, we got consistent turnover. The temperature was still variable. We reduced the process time by 30%, so across the board. So whether it was taking 24 hours, we went down, and if it was taking 40 hours, we still brought that down. The labor was okay, and then the quality, the quality actually increased because we were able to prevent defects. Um, now we're getting more uniformity, and at this particular location, the farmers got paid by, actually it was visual, so the parchment looked really pretty, is what they told us. We were just trying to, you know, we have our goals looking at process time and um, and some flavors, and they said, oh, this was great, we're so happy, it looks, it looks white and, it looks pearly white and pretty, and you know, yay, we, <laughs> it wasn't one of our goals, but it did help them because that was the only way that they got paid was visual and, and uniformity. Okay, so that's the end of my trials um, and, and the things that, you know, sort of different applications. And these are just three kind of extreme examples. We can mix a lot of these. Maybe you have hot, uh, cold temperatures, but you still want to extend the contact time. Um, there's a lot of different scenarios. So we still have a little bit of time. So I wanted to answer some questions, um, both from like the research, how we got here, to anything else. I think we have like 15 minutes. And then I'm going to invite you to a cupping tomorrow at 4.30 to taste these coffees so that you can taste uh, the difference of applying yeast and different, different treatments. Thank you very much. My name is Alejandro Regifo from Colombia. Two questions. One, can you tell us about the yeast? Where it comes from, how, what what is the process of those yeast? Are they coming from Europe or from the United States, or from coffee countries producing? And the second question is regarding competition in tanks. You show us two tanks, one that obviously was more used and the other one cleaner. Um, what is your thoughts? What are your thoughts on between the competition in stainless steel fermentation, or brick fermentation, or ceramic fermentation? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, do, do you want to talk about where the yeast comes from? Answer the second one. Okay, I'll answer the second one first. Um, the material is really, really interesting. So I'm, I'm looking into this now, and I, and I think that I think a tank that you clean is better than a tank that you don't. So a, a, a concrete tank that you clean is better than a stainless steel tank that you don't. And I've noticed in my in my travels that some people like. Stainless steel is cleaner. Um, or more, sorry, not cleaner. It's able to be cleaned more easily, but I haven't really necessarily seen that that's being done. I don't necessarily see people switching out their tanks and then putting in a cleaning regimen um, and scrubbing the tanks and washing them out. So I think that cleanability is the most important part, less so than the material. Now, that being said, if you're going to clean, stainless steel is... Um, easier to do that with, but it can be kind of expensive. I've seen really good results from plastic, um, or I think even ceramic or tile can still be a really good option depending on what's available in, in each country. And where the yeast comes from and why we do it. Okay, to answer the first question, uh, for now it's only three years we work on, on that type of fermentation on coffee, so we don't have done selection of yeast coming from the coffee processing. So it's come from our collection, but it could be from beer, from wine, from bread, from different part of that. And we start some collaboration with some university in Brazil for now to make the selection of yeast on coffee processing. And I think it's important, too, that, like, the strain, it's a Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and yeah. so it's found on coffee cherries. Like, this strain, this type of yeast is found on coffee cherries. It, mm. it is, it's not um, a foreign organism. It's just these particular strains happen to come from a different catalog, different fruit. So these are still selected from fruit, and we're using it on a, diff uh, on a coffee fruit. Does that answer your question? Okay. My name is Kyle Bellinger. I own a 12-hectare farm in Colombia. Um, to follow up on Alejandro's question, um, first, with the types of yeast that are used, I mean, like, I'm, I'm sort of interested in wine as well, and if you go on a, a, a website where you can buy your own yeast to make your own wine, you can buy a yeast that says, okay, this will make Sauvignon Blanc taste like yeah. this, this, or this, and this will make Cabernet taste like this, this, or this. How did the yeast that you use factor into 
coffee? And can you craft different <coughs> flavors depending on the yeast that you use? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I'm looking to do. And it's to take those principles, like you said, in winemaking, where we know that a certain strain paired with a certain cultivar is more likely to give you certain characteristics. We can pick out tropical flavors. We can pick out, I want more pineapple, or I want a cherry style, or even work on the texture. That's what we would like to get to with coffee. But we can do that with wine because there's been so many years of research about where what these yeasts do. And also, the, like we said, the cultivar. Like the, There's a lot of studies between um, what these are. And a lot of the times in the field, I haven't gotten to that point because there's all the cultivars are different. But in the lab, they have are specifically selecting yeast that have these attributes. And you can speak more about... Yeah, I told you during the, the first part that each yeast have a characteristic to synthesize uh, esters or aldehydes responsible of different type of aroma. So in the collection we have, if we want more uh, pineapple flavor, we have to look for the yeast who is going to synthesize this type of esters, for example. But the thing is that the yeast are not coming from coffee, so we have to do some trials to check if it works in the same way. Um, and just one more quick question sure. regarding um, tanks. Um, I mean, I assume for these trials, stainless steel would be ideal because it's you can clean it and it's repeatable and um, but that's not the case for most growers um, and right now it's not the case for most growers that they can actually inoculate their their parchment with with added yeast and so for growers who have you know poured concrete or tiles and they are using natural fermentation natural yeasts um, I'm going to call them wild Wild. These are natural ambient too. Yeast, whatever, whatever, yes, ambient yeasts. Um, what are your thoughts on what what the tank is actually made out of? Because I would admit, I would assume that poured concrete tiles they they hold microbiology. Mm -hmm. uh, even if they're clean, they they tend to hang on to that stuff a little bit more than stainless steel. Yeah, but the thing is that at any time, even if you use steel still a tank, you will have competition because on your coffee you have also microorganism existing. So for now, for Lucia and me, all the trial we have done around the world, most of the time it's concrete. Mm -hmm. yeah. Most of the time. So we don't have any example on steel or plastic or nothing like that. The thing is that the, the charge we put, the concentration of the yeast we had, ensure us that our yeast will be uh, in enough quantity to fight the wild yeast present in the coffee. That was a question. Do you recommend using anything to get rid of the wild yeast before you put your control yeast into the... So that's a method that we use in winemaking, and winemaking is you add the sulfur dioxide and you knock back the native population and then you make sure that yours is, is doing the action. In coffee, like we said, we're working with really limited resources, so in none of my trials have I done that, have I... Per, uh, first sterilized and then inoculated, and to Laurent's point, no. we are adding at a concentration that's so high that we're very confident that the activity that's happening is from the yeast that, are, um, that we're adding. But you probably, have you done where no. you sterilize first? No, no. It's, uh, it seems kind of excessive. I think it's not necessarily, it's great for science, but it's very, it's impractical on a large scale. But I'd love to get there. I mean, like I said, it's, it's basic in, in wine. <coughs> Uh, I'm a producer from Thailand. We did some yeast trial this year. We implemented seven type of yeast and one control in three different areas with three different varietals. But it's so hard to conclude for us because like, one yeast would interact differently for different varietals. Absolutely. Different elevations. Right? Only one that really stood out that are good in all three, it was, it was uh, the yeast that they used for Savion Blanc. That, that's what we found. And and one of the things that you didn't mention that we saw the effect of it is that it's so the yeast is so strong that it kills all the coffee berry borer. Like they float it out and die. And I think the farmers were really happy with that because they don't go then the berry borer don't go back to the farm. Uh -huh. So I think that's one effect that we see for sure. It's like a warning. That's a teacher's yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so that and another effect that we, we saw was the increased malt feel. Like some cup tastes like Lattes in, in the cupping table. Yeah, so creamier, was, fuller, yeah, right? Yeah, you get that more was structure. Really uh -huh. to us. But some are really horrible too. But yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. I, I was happy that, actually, I was happy that a different range, some, 
some was worse, some was better, which which I think, uh, but we just need to find that one that that would increase the cup, I think. But then one thing that are uh, different for us is that you guys put a lot more dose in us because uh, we use the five five gram package for like eighteen kg in a five gallon mm-hmm. parchment. But if we use that much yeast, it's going to be really costly because one packet of five grams is like one dollars already. So I was wondering if if there's an optimum dosage that that's is something that I need. We need yeah, to figure for out. now for the yeast we start to sell. The, we recommend one gram per kg of oh, wet sorry. parchment. Wet parchment. Yeah. Wow. That one gram. That that will cost a lot. And <laughs> it, yeah, it, it very much depends on the source. Um, you know, different yeast cost different amounts. And yeah. and right now, one of our challenges is just shipping. Shipping is very expensive. Um, so we'd like to get to a point where yeast is more readily available and that will significantly bring down the cost and then also buying in bulk but i want to thank you for sharing your experience because a lot of the information that we're getting like i said we have our goals like we were looking for flavor development and it's only through the sharing that we found out there's an impact on the coffee borer beetle there's an impact on the the look of it there's an impact in all of these different um, places that we weren't looking so thank you oh and and another one was the, the, it reduced the vegetal, the, the greenness of fresh coffee. Uh-huh. Yeah, we've, we've gotten I, I that comment, that too. too. Yeah. Okay. Great. And I, I just want to say to your point, it's you, you're trying so many different yeasts, and I think that's great. And it's not about finding the one. I think it's about finding several so that you have choices to make your coffee you know, in different ways. And it's about giving you a toolkit that you can not just make one type of coffee, right? And, and one thing, another one, sorry. Uh, it, it, it doesn't really fit the description, like the taste. If, if it's like pineapple for Sauvignon Blanc, it, it come out completely different. Right. So, uh, it so will depend on the like coffee variety, the maturity, yeah. many things. This is not only the yeast. Yeast yeah. is just going to reveal what is in the bean. If you don't have the precursor always in the bean, you don't go to reveal it. We don't modify with the yeast. We just help. That's it. Sorry? Can you expand a little on that idea? Well, I, I think what he's saying is that, you know, yeast is not, um, it's not magic. So the yeast is, is the, the process of creating these precursors is a metabolism. So it needs to eat the food to create these flavors. And if there's no food, it's not going to do it. So if a yeast that we know is likely to create esters that are pineapple or tropical flavors, just because it's supposed to do that doesn't mean it will if there's not enough um, is it enough minerals or the right sugar or kind of other other parameters like that? So it's not going to give you something that's not in you know that's not inherent in the um, working with the with the varietals and what's available. Question: Is there any um, effect or is this accounted for at all when you use a external source yeast on organic certification hmm. for coffee? I don't really understand. Are you saying in terms of the organic certification? Oh, would it change somebody's organic certification if they use these yeasts? Well, our yeast are organic. Yeah. (laughs) Certified organic uh, yeasts that are available, but also typically in the use uh, in the EU and in the United States, most of our yeasts are uh, certifiable in products that are then labeled as organic. Okay. So yeah, in OPDs. Okay. My name is Tim. I uh, work with Yunnan Coffee Traders in southern Yunnan. Hi, Tim. Hi, Lucia. Um, one of the questions that I was going to ask you guys was, so as you do from small scale to large scale, what obviously you talked about tank space, time. What are the actual executable differences that you've seen in terms of rolling it out from small scale to large scale? So Because we, we worked with Oro this year and SEMA uh, in small scale for, uh, fermentation, trials, fermentation trials in Yunnan. But – as we look to this next year, like what are some of those things? I don't know if you could speak to some of those challenges. Hmm. That's That's been really difficult. And um, I think that the biggest barrier is how different all of the conditions are to to be able to scale. So that's my project this year. Um, or not my project. My biggest priority this year is figuring out how to make this easier. And it, it is a lot of... Like you said, act, like as you saw, activation energy, like doing this for the first time, getting the buckets, uh, waiting the amount of time that you need to wait, adding it, mixing it, kind of waiting. It it seems simple, but doing it the first time is very difficult, and it adds a lot more labor to the process. But I think we can get it to a point where you don't have to think about it so much. And part of that is, is redesigning the tanks that we're using um, in terms of the 
the ratios of you know maybe one one container of yeast to one tank size and and kind of changing that part because I think that these big swimming pool tanks that we usually work with are pretty difficult. So I think it's going to not just be the the strategy of applying the yeast. It's going to be looking at the other equipment, and I think the tank's going to be a big concern. And you guys, um, Tim did this work. Uh, we we walked him through <laughs> using the yeast during Skype sessions because I couldn't go to China, and you can taste his coffee but tomorrow. You can't. But you can come to China. You could if you want. <laughs> now I can go to China. <laughs> um, and his coffee will be on the table, and he did a great job. And it's really cool to see. You know, it doesn't just take Laurent and I to be there. Producers can can purchase and and do their own experiments, and just like we saw the Thailand and other examples. I think we're. I think that's it. Thank you guys so much for coming. You've been listening to a talk from the SCA Lectures podcast series. To hear more on topics relevant to the specialty coffee industry, visit www.scanews.coffee and subscribe to this lecture series. Thanks for listening.